Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Pasaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by Isabella Curry, who is a PhD candidate at La Trobe University, specialising in researching the Wagner Group. Thanks for joining us, Isabella. Thank you for having me. I guess just to begin with, have you been a little bit busy? Yeah, very busy. The last week has been absolute chaos, but it, yeah, lots happening, very busy, but it's it's been a very interesting week as well. You did your master's thesis on the Wagner Group and it started it in late 2020. I, I imagine it's sort of weird to wake up one morning and discover that a Prigozhin has begun marching on Moscow. Yeah, it was it was like an out-of-body experience, really. I, I started researching the Wagner Group in late 2020 and have spent the last, the next two years after that, living, breathing, eating, researching the Wagner Group. And then we, we had Ukraine, the Ukraine invasion last year. And so all of a sudden there was more information about the Wagner Group. But yeah, I, I went to sleep last week on Friday and woke up at 5am in the morning with my phone going off like a firework, just from Google alerts, updates, everything coming through all at once. And I don't think I slept until Monday morning, really. So Isabella, for listeners who may not be aware, who is Prigozhin and what is the Wagner Group? Yeah, so Prigozhin is a, a Russian oligarch of sorts. He is the self-reported founder of the Wagner Group. He's run a conglomerate of catering businesses throughout Russia legally, allegedly, but on the side he has also operated a private army and an arm of the Putin regime's military and security services, pursuing foreign interests abroad, whilst also finding the time to run a very widespread and broad propaganda machine. The Internet Research Agency was an element of that, which was involved in the 2016 US election, and he, he's also got under his hat, I suppose, various different television stations and media organisations as well. Could you tell us a little bit about the sorts of things that the Wagner Group get up to abroad and, and the regions that they've been operating in? Yeah, absolutely. So they've had quite a far reach across countries in Africa from as early as 2017. We're aware that they've obviously been operating in Ukraine, especially over the last 12 months, but they actually were first active in Ukraine in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea and the first invasion of Donbass with pro-Russian separatists. They were also active in the Syrian civil war on behalf of the Assad regime, so coming up against, at times, Western forces, especially US forces. And in terms of their reach in Africa, they've been very active in Libya, Sudan, the Central African Republic and Mali, in amongst other operations that they've also had on the go. Is the Wagner Group 
unique, Isabella, or are there other organisations like it operating within Russia and elsewhere? There are other organisations, other private private armies of sorts, private military security companies. Generally, private military security companies are required to have a business registration. So Wagner is unique in the sense that technically, and for a very long time, it didn't exist. There was no registration, no real ability to find any information on who was operating it and who was involved with it until leaks. We were getting information coming through in leaks. There is a heavy argument that Wagner falls into a Russian form of private military security companies where it can act as an agent of the state or it has previously acted as an agent of the state in pursuing foreign interests abroad. I'm not too sure what its future might look like as a foreign interest of the state after their efforts last week. What sort of purpose does a group like Wagner serve for Putin? It's, I suppose, it, it's it's quite a unique situation. Wagner allows the Putin, or it has certainly for a very long time, allowed the Putin regime to have a sense of plausible deniability in operations abroad, particularly referencing Syria and, and the civil war involvement there. There was no requirement of the Russian Ministry of Defence or security forces to report the deaths of soldiers who technically didn't exist. So if members of the Wagner group died in active conflict, no one really knew what was happening there. So it allowed Russia to conflate numbers and pursue interests without being particularly transparent about that. In in Africa, the, the reach, I suppose, in, in my research looks at performing a an anti-democratic slant. So the Wagner Group it acts as an agent of counter-revolution. It props up governments and autocrats and protects regimes. It also thrives off instability. So it's inserted into these countries that may have at some stage been undergoing a democratic transition. I'm thinking of Mali as the example here. And what they've really done is sown terror and violence throughout a country and, and it's in chaos at, at various stages, both facing insurrections, which are very real issues that that governments face. But also, on the other hand, we have this awful private army training military forces to commit grievous acts of violence and terror. Isabella, I understand it was only recently that Prigozhin was outed himself as the leader of the Wagner Group. You've obviously encountered numerous difficulties in trying to examine or research the group. Can you talk a little bit about what difficulties you've faced and how you've approached them in terms of your thesis and your research more generally? Yes, certainly. So September 2022, Prigozhin openly admitted via his press service on one of his catering companies, Concord, that he founded the Wagner Group. He released a statement which was absolutely astounding. For years and years before that, we were coming up against blatant denial from Prigozhin that he had anything to do with the Wagner Group. He went as far as to take legal action in the UK against Elliot Higgins, who is the or was the head of Bellingcat for defamation over <laughs> associating Prigozhin with the Wagner Group. And to turn around and just admit it in September was it was completely mind-boggling. Before that, we had madly been trying to trace any evidence of, of Prigozhin, be it nicknames or, or leaked text messages, emails, trying to identify him as the head of this group. The open source investigative community was absolutely phenomenal in trying to trace and associate Prigozhin in terms of his role with the group. So a lot of that research and a lot of my research came down to the efforts of the open source investigative community in exposing Prigozhin via leaks and, and hacks 
of correspondence that they'd been just a little too lackluster with their security. And yeah, yeah, that's that's it. We've relied heavily on all of that information digitally. In terms of the activities in Africa and Syria, to what extent has that informed the way that they've operated within Ukraine? Yeah, this is quite an interesting one, I think, because it it really looked for a very long time that there was no real relationship. Wagner just came in as extra numbers in terms of, of, of the military effort. I suppose initially the lessons from direct conflict that Wagner members might have gained in Syria and Africa may have been utilised in those early days in terms in, in Ukraine. But following that, it was really challenging to see anything other than the Wagner group just being used as absolute weapons of terror and violence. They were used to really just amplify the scare tactics and and violent efforts of, of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. They were horrifically aggressive and violent. Their social media presence in various blogs was always sown with really terrifying language and aggressive language. I'm also thinking about their torture effort in Syria with a sledgehammer that went viral a few years ago and then Prigozhin sending a sledgehammer to the European Parliament as just kind of really harnessing the impact of, of violence and terror in the way that they've operated. Isabella, reliance on mercenaries is often understood to be or demonstrating the weakness of a, a state. What do you think Wagner offered or may continue to offer the Russian state in terms of its operations? That's a really interesting question. I don't think that we can really consider the Wagner group to be a textbook case of, of a mercenary army. I think that as it stands at the moment, there's no the, the, the Wagner group operates with impunity abroad. I don't believe that impunity will be awarded to the effort in Ukraine, but in terms of what, what it's doing in Africa and what it had been doing in Syria, it operates with almost complete impunity, and that's a very attractive for states looking to pursue their interests in other countries. The Wagner Group is all but welcomed to these countries by a party. In Libya, they've been welcomed by Khalifa Haftar, who is heading up an anti-government insurgency. I think that the Wagner Group offers an attractive blueprint for any government or actor looking to pursue their interests in foreign countries without suffering the blowback of international law, which as, as it stands at the moment is ineffective in regulating the efforts of, of groups like this. In terms of Wagner's history in Africa, reading through your account, it seemed to draw or depend upon um, an historical legacy of conflict between the Russian or Soviet state and Western states in that part of the world. How has, I guess, Russian history and history of in interventions in Africa and elsewhere by the Soviet state, how does that inform current activities by Wagner? And how do you understand, I guess, the contemporary situation in terms of, of that historical legacy? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think there were certain interventions that the Wagner Group leveraged, the historical relationship with the Soviet states, with the country that it was looking to operate in, in Africa. There were also lots of interventions where Prigozhin and the Wagner Group leveraged anti-colonial and anti-neocolonial protests as a way to insert themselves as bringers of stability in those regions. So 
in Mali, there were protests in 2021 concerning the French, anti-France protests, anti-colonialism protests. The Wagner Group was leveraged in Mali as a group that, well, as, as a group representing Russia, where Russia hadn't been a coloniser, which was the line that was being parroted, and the, the Wagner Group could bring stability without having to rely on the coloniser, which was France. And if you got rid of France and inserted the Wagner Group, they could bring peace in six months. So I think that those historical contexts are really important in terms of how the Wagner Group can, or Prigozhin, or really any actor in these countries are looking to exploit and insert themselves as the heroes of the areas. Now, I suppose we should probably point out that we are recording this on Monday the 3rd of July because things surprisingly didn't move too fast after the last episode we where we spoke about this, which we also recorded on a Monday, but it has to be said that uh, Prigozhin should probably be staying away from any open windows. So just to talk about what happened, do we have a, a clearer idea at this point of why they decided to march on Moscow? Yeah, it's it's been such an interesting week. I definitely agree that Prigozhin should stay away from windows. I believe that he is staying in the only hotel in Minsk that doesn't have windows. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, I suppose, going to work in his favour. I think that what happened last weekend was the culmination of several months of Prigozhin attacking the Russian Ministry of Defence and Security Service. It was really just a new elevation in in what had been months of, of him being very aggressive and really towing the line in terms of his relationship with the Putin regime. It's very dangerous to criticise the Putin regime and attacking this war effort is very much seen as an attack on Putin and and his overall stance. Prigozhin released dozens of angry videos directly attacking Shoigu and Gerasimov. I think the theme of the videos and the angry rants was that they were lacking in ammunition and artillery. They were looking for shells. They were unimpressed with how the invasion was unfolding. They, I think towards the end, Prigozhin was talking about how the Putin had been misled and what was happening in Ukraine wasn't quite as it seems. And so really what happened last week looks like it was just the crux, the final point of these angry <laughs> rants. Whether or not Prigozhin was leveraging himself as an attractive alternative to Shoigu, which is something that has popped up in commentary, or he was looking at a power grab, which is another thing that's popped up in commentary. We just we just don't know at the moment. We haven't really heard anything since Monday in terms of his his belief on what he was doing. He did try to make it quite clear that he wasn't staging a, a coup and it was just a final ditch effort of someone who was trying to get access to Putin and inform him of what was really happening in Ukraine. But, yeah, at, at this stage we just have to wait the information to leak on out, which can be really challenging. What have we seen happen in terms of consequences? I understand that some of his media companies have been wound up. Yeah, yeah. So that seems to have been happening over the last two days. Mass redundancies in terms of his media companies. He was the head. He he ran a a media conglomerate called Patriot Group, and many of those organisations have been dissolved and many of the staff members have been made redundant. It looks like he's being scrubbed 
from the internet, which is a pretty classic case of something that might happen to one of Putin's enemies. Over time, they just slowly become eliminated from being able to be researched or, or accessed in, in Russian internet and social media circles. So that, that's all happening at the moment. We're still not quite clear on what's going to happen with the Wagner group, but Prigozhin is allegedly in in, in Minsk at the moment after Again, allegedly, there was a negotiation brokered with Lukashenko. In terms of those media companies, as you mentioned, he, he ran the Internet Research Agency, but what, what sort of role did those companies play within the wider Russian media ecosystem? Yeah, they were huge. Russian has had an influence in, in media and propaganda circles from as early as 2011, really. He funded a a documentary-style movie called Anatomy of a Protest in reaction to a lot of pro-democracy protests that were happening in the, the region, in Putin's region. So he staged his Anatomy of a Protest documentary, which was really that first taste. And then we're looking at the Internet Research Agency developing slowly over time. Really the crux of that was 2016, but before that it, the arms of it had a heavy involvement in what was happening in Ukraine in 2013, 2014 through 2015. And following that, his propaganda arms in terms of his, and I quotation marks either side of my mouth at the moment, his formal news organisations were heavily involved in pushing pro-regime propaganda on behalf of the Putin regime. So it, it will be really interesting to see what happens there because he was quite important in, in that economy of information especially so in the operations that he's staging now or he had been staging in Africa. So what's going to happen from that point, we just don't know at the moment. Isabel, you've described Wagner as being committed to the promotion of autocracy. I'm wondering if you can maybe elaborate a little on what you understand to be the relationship between autocratic forms of rule and fascism. And secondly, do you think it's useful to ascribe a political ideology to Wagner? And if so, how would you describe it? That's a really good question. I think that if, if we look at autocratic rule being one that if, if we were to put it on a, on a polar as an opposite to a democratic rule, we're looking at autocrats as people who deny their, their people their civil liberties. They rule with the absence of representation of the people, your leader has absolute power, no account for people's wishes. If we take a look at fascism, we're looking at extreme nationalism, militarism and supremacy of, of the leader. So there's definitely a relationship there. Autocracies are often quite militarised and can also have with them elements of nationalism. So there's definitely, there's definitely interconnections and a relationship there. I would ascribe elements of an ideology to the Wagner group. I think that it would be lapse not to, if you look at its very name, the Wagner group, it's a reference to Richard Wagner, the 19th century composer who was a notorious anti-Semite. Dmitry Utkin, who is reputed to have been one of the founders of the Wagner group, is an ex-Special Forces member of, of the Russian military. He, he's covered from head to toe in Nazi tattoos, Nazi tattoos. So that's it would it would be silly to not highlight those elements of an ideology when talking about Wagner, whether or not those values or that ideology is adopted by the whole group, we don't really know. There have been 
on many occasion photographs of members of the Wagner group also sporting Nazi tattoos or badges, etc. Obviously, they're heavily involved in the Z effort in Russia, which has its own associations with fascism. So I, I definitely think that when talking about Wagner, we need to highlight those elements of ideology. There are a few Z cheerleaders in Australia, thinking about people like the Aussie Cossack. Mm-hmm. What was the local reaction to last weekend's events? It was quite interesting, I think, even just in terms of, of personal commentary when, when discussing it on social media, there was a, quite a bit of pushback in terms of the discussion and things that we were choosing to highlight. The Aussie Cossack is always an interesting case. I think that he's appealed to Wagner several times over the last 12 months to come and rescue him. So that's that's there's certainly, I think, a, a sentiment there that is very sympathetic to the Wagner group, which is terrifying. But for the most part, it it looks as though people recognise Wagner for what it is, which is just a violent and terrifying private army. I'm just just imagining the Wagner group rolling into Sydney. I know, I just... The bust him out of the embassy. I I think I remember, yeah, I, I remember reading about that initially when Simeon Boykoff was, I think he was offering a, a prisoner-style exchange or the Wagner group would hunt down some prisoners and, and then Simeon Boykoff would be an attractive exchange for that. So, yeah, just, I'm, I'm not sure, one, if they'd even find themselves with access to Sydney and, two, if they'd even be willing to trade something for Simeon Boykoff of all people. Yeah. <laughs> don't know if I'd even want to trade with him in a secret Santa. No, gosh, no. <laughs> I think he's priceless. <laughs> yeah, well. Isabella... Putin justified his invasion slash special military operation partly by reference to Nazism and claiming that the military operation was to intended to denazify Ukraine. So it's somewhat surprising, I guess, to learn that one of the founders of the group is a man covered in Nazi tattoos. But those sorts of accusations and counter accusations seem to be embedded in a lot of the discourse around Ukraine in terms of Nazism and and so on and so forth. How do you approach those questions? How do you negotiate those competing claims? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. I think it's important to really look at the facts. At the end of the day, Ukraine has a a minority in terms of its support for far-right actors and on the other hand, the Wagner Group at its at its highest had quite a significant support network and it is an awful, awful group. I think when you have a force that has been developed for now almost a decade to instill terror and violence on populations, to violently attack and commit grievous acts of sexual and gender-based violence for women, children and men, I think that it's hard to find a middle ground where you can justify uh, its use anywhere, really. I mean, it's, it, is an, it is a criminal organisation full of violent, violent men. And I think regardless of the context in any country, it, it shouldn't be operating anywhere. I don't think that there is any truth to Putin's claims that he's making an effort to denazify Ukraine. I think we were well aware of that when it was happening initially, and I think that we're even more aware of it now. And 
really this has all been an an awful awful effort from from Russia. Do you think that the human rights and I suppose international justice frameworks that are currently in place are equipped to handle a group like this? I don't. I don't. I think that existing international frameworks at the moment rely heavily on the belief that groups groups that are the model that the Wagner Group is based off, so we'll highlight private military security groups, they have a requirement under international law to be registered in their country of operation. So we would say for the Wagner Group, it would have a requirement to be registered in Russia. Now, in Russia, private military groups are illegal. <laughs> They're not allowed to operate. Mercenaries are also illegal. I believe any group that is training for conflict may even be unconstitutional, but I'd have to look further into that again. So I think that there's that's one monumental difference. So the Wagner Group has had no formal registration anywhere. So in the absence of a registration, you have a group that operates with impunity because there's nobody to hold accountable. Until September last year, Prigozhin was denying any association with the Wagner Group. We had no idea of any of the forces that were registered as fighting with or for the Wagner Group. So they were able to commit and continue to commit these awful human rights abuses with impunity. There's no mechanisms of accountability. There are no frameworks to hold them responsible for the crimes that they're committing. And we're finding that they're operating in countries that are lacking the legal system to then pursue that locally. And if Prigozhin is to slip on a banana peel or whatever, I presume then that means there's there's no one else to be held accountable. Is that correct? Yeah, not really. Not really. Unless they have the, the names, I suppose, of the people who are committing these acts and they have the legal frameworks in place locally and domestically to pursue their accountability in, the, in their own judicial systems. There's no one, really. No one exists to be held accountable or hold them to account at a stretch. You might be able to look at the satellite officers that are operating in the countries under the facade of, of mining, I suppose, <laughs> but there's no real international law framework that would, that would make that available. So there's, there's just this terrifying group of people committing lots of human rights abuses with absolute impunity. Given the role that, or the seemingly effective role that the Wagner groups played in recent years, assuming it does in fact completely dissolve, do you think there's a, a possibility that some other equivalent organisation will emerge to take over its role? I think that there are some pretty strong arguments either side of this question. On, on one side, I, the Wagner Group offers a very attractive blueprint for operating as an agent of, of foreign interference. So that's one very strong case that another group may come and take its place. It might be the same group with a different label. They might just change hats. That's reasonably likely, I think. If, if we look at all of these campaigns in Africa and what's happening and they're still heavily involved in the Central African Republic, they're still heavily involved in Mali and Libya. As we know, Sudan's just gone back into, well, it has been consistently in conflict for a very long time, but government, transitional government has just faced another rise in their conflict. I think that Wagner has had a role in a lot of these places and a presence in a lot of these places and continues to have that presence. And I don't think that that's something that can just go away. So I do think that there is a case to be made that the group will continue in one way or another. On the other hand, if you develop a group 
for the purpose of destabilizing and at times counteracting and overthrowing governments, it may reach a point where it bites the hand that feeds it. And I think that that's what we saw last weekend. This is a group that has been for a very long time training with the purpose of making power grabs. And that is a scary thought, I think, and may have been a scary thought for Putin last week that we now have tens of thousands of trained forces marching towards our capital with the purpose of destabilising our government. So there is also a case to be made that they may have learnt their lesson. I'm not sure that's as likely as things will continue under a new name, new hat, new person running the show. Well, on that cheery note, Isabella, we will leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. If people want to read more of your work, you are on Twitter while it still lasts, which is looking increasingly unlikely, at bell double underscore curry, that's C-U-R-R-I-E, or at isabellacurry.com. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Andy, that is our show. But just before we go, we've got a few people to thank from the Radiothon. Which, we have many people to thank, Cam. <laughs> well, we thanked a few people last week. We did manage to raise $7,094, which seems a little ridiculous. I did tell you not to raise expectations for us, but <laughs> no one listens to me. So thank you to Amy, Sophie, Jessica, Damien, Cam, Marty, and especially Craig, as well as Cameron, Jason, Jim, Cam, Ben, Mel, Dave, and Matt. Thank you all. Thank you very much. Well, we'll be back next week. See you later. See you then. Have you experienced or seen racism against blackfellas? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up. Be heard. Call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter. Australia's energy market is broken. Right, but Copower gives you better energy? Nope, no retailer can control where the electrons they buy off the grid come from. But as a Copower member, you can vote on where 100% of revenue goes. So instead of corporate profit, your energy bill builds the world you want to be a part of. That's cool. Learn more about the solidarity economy and Copower today and take the power back. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter.